Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Cybersecurity Recruiter Podcast. Today, I'm joined by, I've just been practicing saying his surname off air correctly, Kane McCladry. Kane, did I get it right? Yes, you did. Thanks for having me on the show. No, not at all. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on. Um, I know you've got a, a nice presence online. We had a really nice conversation off air before. And just for, for everyone listening, we're going to get stuck into it, but uh, Kane's got a vast amount of experience, very strong online presence, been involved with various different podcasts. He's currently the field CISO at Hyperproof, does, holds various advisory board member positions, came in through the GRC route, was involved with the GRC route at one point. So there's a lot to, lot to unpack there. But Kane, I've done you a very rough kind of high level intro i could never do it as well as you so a nice place i always like to start is who are you my friend and what have you been up to career-wise fair enough and again thanks for having me on the show today so i am a i like to say that i'm a 25 year veteran of the cybersecurity industry because that makes me sound younger so there is that and i got into this industry funny enough i am a former theater kid in high school i sincerely did believe i had i was following my life dream of singing and dancing on broadway realized quickly in the first year of college that there was no path there and rent wasn't just the name of a musical but it was actually a thing you had to pay and so i hard pivoted my improvisational skills into a consulting job with a government contractor and got immediately involved in security because of some fairly glaring, obvious security issues that were prevalent in that environment. And you'd think a government contractor is going to be absolutely locked down and the facility is going to be locked down. It was a real eye-opener for how that's actually perceived. And in the years since, I have had the privilege of learning way too many things. I'll say my career trajectory right there already sounds non-traditional, right? At the time, we didn't have cybersecurity certifications. There were not even cybersecurity courses. We called it information security. In the two plus decades since, I've had the privilege of running worldwide professional services at a global cybersecurity company. I have had the privilege of being a CISO, Chief Information Security Officer at a defense industrial base manufacturing company. I was nominated and made a a senior member of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, that's the IEEE, as uh, a senior member for my contributions in cybersecurity. And currently, I serve as the field CISO at Hyperproof, where I spend probably way more time than most people reading legal journals, regulatory filings, and other stuff that most people would just straight up put to sleep. And the reason that I'm doing that is if I think of the recommendations I was making 25 years ago, that government contractor, hey, let's not maybe put our terminal in the lobby without a username and password where anybody can log in. Just basic security controls. I think we've seen a systemic failure of basic security controls for over two decades, which is getting us to our incredibly prescriptive regulatory requirements that are now down, coming down the pike and affecting businesses. Thanks, Ken. There's loads that I'm going to get into there, by the way. You talk about security controls. It's true. Even even with, with, with cloud and what the cloud vendors have done, and there's so much, so much work to do on that side. But yeah, there's, there's loads to, to unpack there. One thing you just said a few minutes ago, you said certifications weren't around when you started. So sorry if we are aging you a bit, buddy. But what are your, what are your thoughts on certifications? I know you've got, I know you've got CISP and 
great for kind of communication and management and so on and so forth. But what is, what's your general thoughts on certs and what would your advice to anyone listening be about certifications? So it's, it's funny. I have the one certification. I've only ever held one certification. And I'm told that where you're at in the United Kingdom, actually, my CISSP is equivalent to a master's degree, which again, is a guy who's a college dropout. I find that immensely funny. I did my CISSP as a, a check of my own knowledge. I didn't expect that I'd actually get it. And years ago, when Microsoft came out with the MCSE, which was very early on. Uh, I was a Unix guy and they said TCP IP was an elective. Okay, cool. I'm going to go try this Microsoft exam because we just finally saw it on a deck alpha. Again, I'm dating myself here. Passed it, went, okay, yeah, the certification thing seems like a cash grab. And it has, my perception of that really hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. And the problem that I see endemic to our industry is HR, human resources, has over-rotated into trying to reduce business risk by requiring an increasingly difficult and unrealistic certification burden. And what that's caused is this perception of a cybersecurity skills gap combined with forcing costs on to job seekers that they don't necessarily always recoup, and that's causing macroeconomic problems. If you think about your DEI initiatives, we don't have a facility for equity in our industry because if you're forcing somebody to take multiple thousand dollars of certifications and then all of the test prep and courses associated with that, unless they are somebody who is, I don't know, a minority veteran, which we target heavily in the United States for cybersecurity education, and I've had the great privilege of hiring and working with many of those individuals, beyond that, there's it becomes very hard to bring other people in to our industry because of that certification or that you have to have a master's degree in cybersecurity. And I think that is unfortunately the very wrong way to go about it. I was in Florida with a good friend of mine, actually, just this week at an information security conference. And she is a global CISO at a, a company, I think we all know, very nice person. And she said she has no certifications. She straight up sees them as a flat cash grab. That's all they are. And she does, however, have, I think, a, a bachelor's or a master's or something like that. But once you get to a certain amount of point in your career, the question becomes, do I even need this stuff anymore? Yeah, Any yeah. of these certifications or not? Yeah. But for new job seekers, it is tremendously difficult, the market perception right now that a we've conflated a an ability to pass tests with an intent and a uh, the wherewithal to do a job. Yeah, no, no, that, thanks, Ken. That, thank you for that detailed answer as well. And I really like what you, what you said there. You get to a certain point of your career and they do become less and less relevant. If you're trying to break in, I, I call them HR busters because you know you have uh, there's some great HR departments, don't get me wrong, across America. But there's also a lot that perhaps don't understand a particular role or a particular skill set. So they're leaning on certifications to try and use it as a filter before uh, people get in front of highly technical people like yourself or, or, or various other, other people on the team. But yeah, I and think it's not it's... only that, it also is unfortunately an information leakage for a lot of those companies. Back when I used to, prior to joining Hyperproof, I was at a company mm -hmm. doing uh, executive advisory work on cybersecurity. And I had a, a good friend of mine I was working with, former Air Force. He used to build, blow stuff up before he figured out how to fix it. And then he started to figure out how to blow up cyber things. And he would do open source intelligence on companies where we were doing a cybersecurity maturity. And any company that in their job listing 
listed a specific tech stack gave him and his crew incredibly detailed targeting information because we were on under warrant with them to go engage adversarially and so if they say they've got this type of cloud and this type of mdr and this type of sim his team would just straight up go right after that because the job listings were giving away free information and I think the other thing associated with that of, of over-reliance on a specific tech stack, that presupposes you're not going to change your tech stack. And if we think about the rate of change in cybersecurity, a lot of companies move through their tech stack rather quickly. And so because you're hiring for somebody who has the thing you bought last year, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to still be using that in two years time. But if you want to retain that employee for that duration of time, you're going to have a more compelling reason than, hey, you're really good at passing tests and you're really good at old tech that we're probably going to replace. Thanks. So you heard it here first, reconnaissance skills, job adverts, great fit for offensive. But yeah, okay, thanks again. And um, yeah, another thing you just said about five minutes ago, you said, certifications have, have created a perceived skill gap. And I'm just going to reference a story that really basically played to that narrative quite well, because I I had a large client, well, I've still got a same company, large client. Um, yeah, I can say where they are, in California. And I sent someone across and they were like, Tom, that's not an interview. And I went, no, 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 listen, I, I've interviewed this, but like, this is, this person could do the job i've interviewed them anyway they interviewed them and it went on to be uh, a success and and that is a prime example of what you're talking about just because they haven't got certain letters after the name and by the way for everyone listening i do think if you're breaking in or you're at a certain progression rate or a certain point in your career i do think certifications serve a great purpose and there is certain ones that are getting better and better but but yeah, it, 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 that, is, that plays into what you just said. It, it, if you have, just because you haven't got, lots of people will be discounted out of a process because they haven't got the certs and they can do the job. Ken, I don't know if you can answer this question. It might be a really tough question to answer, but how, how do we solve that problem? I get it. If it's a low level like hacking firm and there's 15 people on the team and the founder's a hacker, he or she can look at a resume and I can talk to them and it will be fine. But if it's a big big department. Do you have any solutions or workarounds for for not having to go the certification route? I think we do have several. And I'd say to your listeners who are early in their careers to look at the skills and technologies and uh, the TTPs that are associated, tools, technologies, processes, associated with giving a, uh, a given role, and then also what certifications there are, and then go learn those skills don't necessarily get those letters, don't necessarily pay the certification tax fee thing, and have some interviews and find out. And in the course of those interviews, if the reason the interviewer says we're not continuing you is you don't have these magical three to five letters behind your name as a certification, it's a narrative, it's a question now you can ask, like, if I had that, would you hire me? Or am I missing something else? I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it, as uh, just speaking from a job seeker's perspective, is to limit the number of certifications that you're going after. And if I can wrap a favorite resource of mine, cyberseek.org, so cyberseek.org, really like them because they're vendor neutral and fairly agnostic and have good jobs data. And I say that because a lot of the certification providers will say, do our boot camp, get our certification, 
you're going to get a job that pays six figures just like that. And that's not the way reality actually works, but they're giving this inflated view of how easy it will be. So that's from the job seekers perspective is really start to push on what do I really need this? Or do I just need to show you I have these skills? Mm -hmm. The thing I'd say for large companies now, if you're running a large security operations center, for example, or a large uh, team in cybersecurity, start to consider, can you control your costs better? If you were to hire people who don't have certifications, who have the skills, who have the background, who have the intent and really have the motivation to stick around and then offer, look, as part of your onboarding process, we're going to have you do an aptitude test and we're going to have you do something very similar. I don't know, it's use a SIM to go through log files or do an adversarial activity, maybe pick apart some malware. You go ahead and pick, depending on the job type, but see if they can actually do the work. And I wouldn't say that just for the people who have a certification. I'd say that see if they can do the work. And if they have a certification and they can do the work, maybe they get paid a little more if they don't have a certification and can do the work. Offer them as part of their compensation package. We'll pay for that first certification for you. If you need a certified ethical hacker, we will pay that for you once you get in the job. And the reason I say that it's more important that they have the intent and the ability to demonstrate that they can do the work, if you think of entry-level cybersecurity jobs, they have a tremendous burn rate on people, especially in the security operations center. SOC 1 analysts, security operations center, level 1 analysts, are basically told the ocean is going to wash over your desk every day. You are going to fight it with a checklist and drown. And that will be your day job for a year. Or if you go into as an associate consultant in a, in a consultancy, you're going to be given a lot of very remedial basic work. Like you have to be able to read this paper for evidence of control operation. And that's often who signed it. When was it signed? When was the last time it was signed? Does that app indicate the policies up to date? It's those very, these are routine consecutive identical feeling tasks that they don't feel very fun and so we burn people out and so now we've got this this dichotomy of you have this incredible barrier to entry of all this certification cost and effort and you get a very routine job on the back end of it and you go why did i spend all that money because this sucks so if you're again if you're an employer think through that carefully what can you offer people that requires some creativity and how can you assess that earlier in the interview cycle so that they stay for more than a year not that they just turn and burn because they realize this mustn't be the right place for me Thank you, Ken. I, thank you, my friend. I just want to jump back a bit because you, you said something a few minutes ago that I just really want to. I, I just really want to pack. So let me get this straight for everyone listening. If we're not going to go the certification route, so we're going to basically get the skills associated with those certifications to to, to, to show that we, we've essentially got them. We just don't want to. We don't want to buy into the, to the cert market. So we're going to get the, the certifications. Another thing you said, which is really good, you said if you do get any rejections. The question to ask is, okay, so if I did have the letters after my name, uh, I'd get the job. And I think it's really important on that point is if you don't get a job, you get rejected. I think that feedback element is essential because if there's something you're not quite doing or or, or this, that, that, it's so important to get that back. So essentially just reverse engineering the certification, 
showing not only getting those skills but showing that you've got them and articulating that whether that be online on a youtube channel on twitch or on social or having some real depth to your profile which i know you've got which we're going to come on to in uh, shortly kane but basically showing that you can do those skills if you if you still get rejected taking some feedback and taking some fe- feedback as well just one point another another point i want to mention is People think they come into cybersecurity, there's a skills gap, I'm sorted. It's not the reality. People think if I get some certifications and I'm in cybersecurity, it doesn't matter if I've got no experience, I'm sorted. Me and you know that's not the case. Where the game changes is when you actually get some experience. Look at yourself. You've got one certification and you've been very successful. You're extremely senior. That proves the point that it, it hasn't been your once you've got a you've got SIP, it's a great certification, but it you've got one certification. It hasn't been that cert that's elevated you where you are today. It's been your probably your personality and your experience combined. So that experience element is essential. There's another what, part to that as well though, and it's the part okay. that I think about. When I was joining the industry, there were there was not the certification requirement. It was not a perception that this was something that we need. And I think that also, just to talk to the elephant in the room, I am a cis white man, right? And I'm tall, right? If you want to have all the, if you want to have all of the marker initiatives for success, I just watched the Barbie movie. They cover that whole topic in the Barbie movie, which is very top of mind for me. This is why we end up, unfortunately, with a monoculture, or we've driven towards a monoculture in cybersecurity for years now, because if you have these genetic markers, if you have this basic background, you're probably more acceptable than somebody isn't because employers aren't taking risks. So the thing I'd suggest, if you're a job seeker again, and you don't have all of that background and you think that's just garbage anyway, it's a whole bunch of money for not necessarily a result, start thinking of which employers are more likely to take a risk on you. And if you're an employer, start thinking, is it willing to take that risk or do we want to have these openings open on a perpetual basis? Because the the fact that somebody took a risk on me 25 or 30 years ago or however long ago it was, we don't do that anymore. And I think that is really hurting the creativity of our industry. Not only that, I've said this before and I'll say it again, if we just take the fairness element out of it for a second and just strictly talk about security postures, uh, a white man thinks differently to to a Asian female. I can list all the different diversity, ethnicity situations just from a how people think or a hacker mindset or a sock guy or girl's mindset. Like it is, we need to get this right for security. Can I could talk about this for because I, I want to productize a service within our agency to do to to push diversity because I think if if there's a company there and there are 100, 200, 300 headcount and it's predominantly white men, I think without outside help from a, a recruitment agency, I think they're going to struggle to attract diversity when it comes to gender and ethnicity. Once it's built, it's, do you get what I'm saying? It's a worse problem than that, though. If we look at the macroeconomic portrait we're actually working in right now, the state of play is this. We have a whole bunch of highly educated people with very similar socioeconomic backgrounds, with very similar life stories, with very similar ways of thinking, as you say. The overseas threat actors know this about Western nations. They know we all behave about the same way. And that's why we're starting to see the latest groups like ALF-V, Scattered Spider, 
collapses or if you go back to LulzSec, they are engaging with us in unfamiliar ways because of our collective groupthink, because of our life experiences. We don't think of that. That just never occurred to us that maybe swatting was a valid information security adversarial technique, or maybe doxing somebody's entire family is a valid, and that's what the new threat actors are willing to do. All of the normalcy red lines that that we thought were normal because we all think about the same, they're willing to cross those lines because they come from a different socioeconomic background. They come from a different philosophical background. And until we bring those people into our collective conversation, we are going to keep getting rolled by threat actors. And they have an economic incentive to do that more than cybersecurity job folks. Because if you're in, I don't know, let's say you're in North Korea, where they start teaching people to work in cybersecurity offensive operations from age 11. Or if you're in Russia, where that is actually a primary industry there, where you can either work as a privateer, or you can work for a government agency. Or in China, same thing, right? That you're doing your government a favor. You're going to a government job. You're going to get a retirement. You're going to get a pension. You're going to get bad coffee. You're going to have a performance review. It's a normal job to them. We are missing this point in our industry and we're doing it. It's like Alcoholics Anonymous, right? We keep ex- doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Yeah. Bad coffee. That doesn't sound very good. I've never been to a Russian <laughs> FSB office say, to have yeah, bad gonna, coffee. Gonna, Maybe they have good po- coffee yeah, in St. Yeah, Petersburg. Yeah, I'm not sure. Say, I was going to say, how do you know the coffee's bad? It might be lovely, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see that on my travel plans, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, listen, by the way, for everyone listening, uh, normally I really plan these episodes out, but me, it's my fault, it's not your fault, Kate. I, I promised I'd plan it, I didn't. But listen, this is flowing really nicely. So for everyone listening, we're just doing this completely off the bat. It's great, the conversation's flowing. The conversation's moving really fast and we're cramming stuff in and I keep making mental notes and writing little things down because I keep wanting to ask you about things. On the diversity piece, we're both in agreement it's a massive, the, the facts speak for themselves, it's a problem. I, I, I've come up with a kind of solution that we can productize a service, blah, blah, blah. Look, some companies are going to do that. Not, not everyone's going to do that. I've pitched it to, to certain clients. Some love it. Some just aren't really that, that fuss. So that's a bit of a solution, but that's a tiny solution within our organization. What solutions have you got in your mind that could help as, a, as an industry? It's probably a long-term play, but I'd be interested to... And we are really into generational problems at this point. And I'd say if you're listening to this right now and you're in cybersecurity and you're thinking like, what can I do to actually move the needle? A lot of us will look at saying, we could go to speak at a college, right? And I've went and I've lectured on ethics at colleges, which I again find so funny. And I'm on a board of directors at a college. That's the wrong phase of the problem. And high schools, I will even pause it, is the wrong stage of a problem. You know how I learned how to prepare for board presentations? I learned to go talk at middle schools. If you really want to get good at public speaking and if you really want to move the narrative, go find public schools, public middle schools for those kids who still haven't figured out their career path. Because otherwise, they're not going to hear about cybersecurity or information security as a valid career path. What do they all want to do today? They want to be influencers. 
They want to yeah. be on YouTube. They want to do podcasts. It used to be there was doctor, there was attorney, there was astronaut. Now there's influencer and sports star in there. None of these are cybersecurity jobs. And then we look at why so many folks think, first of all, this is all hands-on keyboard type work. It's not. So if you go speak at a middle school, Make sure that you make it an accessible presentation so that they can see themselves in the role. One of the, the funnest presentations I've done before is I take a garbage webcam and I have the audience help me hack it. And I just, here's a keyboard, let's go get some passwords, right? And they can then start to see themselves. They can do this job, actually. This stuff isn't hard to do. There's similar ways that we can get them involved. Because if we don't, what are they going to see? They're going to see the guy who's in the dark hoodie over a keyboard in a dimly lit room. A good friend of mine finally explained what the hoodie thing is because I didn't get it. It's, it's, it's cold in data centers. And like she wears a hoodie to work just because it's cold in there. But that's one way we can really all engage is go speak at middle schools. The other thing that we can really do is work with our human resources professionals, our partners in business, whether you're a senior executive or whether you are a, I don't know, a mid-tier career professional and start asking them if they understand what the role that they're hiring for is. Because if we can help fix this at an HR professional level where they're trying to partner with us to bring in the appropriate people, because they might have just done it and went and asked ChatGPT to write them the remit for a cybersecurity professional role, right? That They might not have a background of understanding what do they need, or they might have gone and done a Google for it, and they just go, well, these acronyms all look good. Let's go ask for this. I can measure for that. We can put metrics around that. It's the wrong narrative. So if you're a professional, go talk to your HR partner. They're easier to talk to than a middle schooler, especially a full gymnasium. But get them to understand, here's what we're hiring for, and maybe less on certifications, more on aptitude. Talk to them about what you do during your job, during day-to-day, so that they can understand and empathize with the people who they'll be hiring for it. Yeah, yeah thanks, Kate. And uh, so I don't necessarily want to start bad-mouthing recruiters, but it's so true. So many of them do not grasp. I'll give you an example, Kate. I get messages on LinkedIn from recruiters because they think I'm a pen tester. That says it all. Do you know what I mean? And if you want to give me, if you want to give me all your leads, if you want to, if you want to do my lead gen for me, great. We probably won't go down this road because we could talk and talk, but there probably needs to be some sort of standardization or maybe certifications, dare I say, certifications for recruiters. Cause yeah, that, that, that is part of the problem. Just going back to what you said. So going into middle school, so that look, I've got, um, I, I, I know when people get a second language taught to them very early on in life, they pick it up like that. They pick it up really quick. People are more impressionable when they're, when they're, when they're younger. If they're hearing about things at a young age, if they're hearing about TikTok and influencers, I think that will just go into their brain and that's it. They want to be an influencer. But if they're hearing about security and the positive effects they could have and how much society needs them and so on and so forth, like you say, that could really be molded into their brains and uh, minds at uh, an earlier stage. So essentially, what you're saying is by the time you get to, to college, it's their, their, their mind's made up. It's oh, it's late. far too late. At that point, they're already taking on a substantial amount of debt, probably, or they've t- pursued an academic track so that they can get uh, scholarships in order to fund that. Uh, um, true story here. One of my uh, kids, uh, we put parental controls on all of the devices. This one got very good at uh, getting around those device level controls and went, wait a second. <laughs> so when I grow up, they want to do artwork. 
true fact. That's one of the things that they, they want to do is go okay. be an artist. And they've now, instead of doing high school, they've just went straight to college because we have that here in Washington State. They are taking a cyber a cybersecurity two-year course, and it's not necessarily to get into cybersecurity. And this is an interesting perspective here from a young person who I'm, I know very well, where their idea is, wait, you're telling me I can take a two-year course, I can make a middle wage, a middle income, a reasonable amount of money without a substantial amount of debt, and then I can take that money and I can pivot it towards the career that I want to go pursue? I think that's a whole narrative our industry has missed. We figure that you're going to get into cybersecurity and that's your last job you ever want to do. For some of us, it is. This is the only thing I'm going to be doing. We can listen to this in 25 more years and see, oh, he's probably right. But for other people, it's a great revenue uh, generator for you, right? And think about the, the larger social effects that has. If people get into a cybersecurity role, they stay for two years, right? They make 100000 or more dollars a year. That money is going back into their communities. That money is not going towards student loans. That is money that they can actually take if they're a young person and they want to have something like a down payment for a house or if they want to uh, be able to pay off other student loans. Again, there's a great financial incentive associated with cybersecurity, but only if they understand. Maybe this isn't your forever job, are going to have a burn rate nutrition in our industry, of course, but it does pay very well. The cost of entry is not very high. And if you stick around for a couple of years, you know what? Maybe you'll stay around permanently, but at least as a person who lives in the world, you will be far more informed than uh, somebody who's not, who goes to cybersecurity training and it's a surprise to them. Yeah, no, cool. Thank you, mate. Just another point you picked up on. Chat GPT. Have you, I mentioned this before, but it, it's, have you heard of Orthopedic Claude? It's a different version. Yeah, it's a different. It's basically the same as Chat GPT, but better. Um, oh. So yeah, yeah. Honestly, tr- try it, Kane. It's, it, it's absolutely mega. You'll, you'll love it. Not many people have heard of it, but they're getting some. I forgot. I can't remember how they're backed, but they've got some big backers, uh, obviously. And uh, I think they're. In a, on a bit of a charge like they're going to do well but yeah to check it out and let me know what you think it's, so. it'll be interesting to see what it says for a remit for cybersecurity entry role because I've had it right <laughs> like I've asked okay. GPT, tell me what stresses out a CISO and the things that it gives you that stress out a CISO first of all sound like my day job but also they weren't giving any ideas for like how to de-stress a CISO or how to okay. make it easier to get into so clearly it doesn't know those answers maybe Claude does I'm not sure yeah, but my point is that we may be moving towards a world, and this is an interesting facet of having generative AI, where people who don't understand what the job is are now going to use generative AI that's been trained on the entire internet. And if we think about the large number of bad job applications and job descriptions that we've seen on the internet, and they're going to set that as their high water bar, that only makes matters worse, not better. Yeah. Yeah, there's certain, that's a really good point. And this, I can relate this to recruitment. I've asked it certain questions on when we're doing contract recruitment and we're financing projects, you need to be aware of how different margins work and so on and so forth. And I won't get into all that, but I've asked it certain questions on that just out of interest and it's been wrong. And I was thinking, God, if you were brand new to recruitment and you were pricing up a large project and, and listening to chat GPT, you might not make any money <laughs> or you might even lose some. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's not always right. I don't know if it's that clever yet. I'm sure there's stuff there that is and there's different things that's impressive. And I've used it for certain stuff and it is quite cool. But do you think it's that good yet? What's your thoughts? So the thing that I'm looking at it is in an idealized world, 
world where an organization is using correct resume blinding and has a good applicant tracking system, we're actually going to make the recruitment process more fair. However, now moving to our generative AI, in New York State, they recently have enforcement now as of September of 2023 around companies that are using machine learning or artificial intelligence to, because they realize that we can't, we can audit software code for security vulnerabilities. We can audit it for privacy and regulatory vulnerabilities. There's no way to audit it for ethical outcomes. And so companies in New York State that are using applicant tracking systems that have some kind of magic box, artificial intelligence, machine learning, shrug, I'm not sure which, right? have to start publishing outcomes on an annualized basis of how marginalized protected classes are being positively or negatively affected by this tooling because there's that perception of this could move the needle very well if we are doing true resume blinding and taking away all protected class factors that we should be taking away from in our decision over to who to hire, or the black box AI could go and exacerbate those more where we move towards some version of redlining where we are in unintentionally because the AI has decided to discriminate against a protected class of individuals. And that is across all industries, not just across the cybersecurity industry. I think we're going to see a lot more of that because from an HR perspective, the idea is there, right? Like maybe this will make it easier to find recruits and to, to hire them. But if you don't know how the artificial intelligence is making its decisions, and ChatGPT makes one trillion-ish calculations, and I say ish because I don't even remember the number, you can't figure out which of those 20 ones led to a biased result. It's just, we don't have that scale or yeah, scope. So and we have to look at outcomes. Yeah. And then do you know what it is? Like, obviously, we talked about diversity and stuff like that. If you've got, uncon if you people that are producing it have got some unconscious bias in their mind, that kind of ties back in with the diversity piece. And it just all loops back. It just all loops back. I honestly think this time is going to be looked back upon as like the, the wild west of just, I think it'll be looked like, a, there's so much going on. I promised myself on this podcast, I'd never talk about politics or anything like that. And I'm not going to, when you talk, when you think about what it's doing in elections in the US and in the UK, it's, it's a crazy time and it's all so new and it's just not, there's so much to do. Um, there's so much work to do. Not enough time in either of our lifetimes, I don't think, came, but there's a lot to be lot to be done. That's a really good chat about AI and stuff. Ken, I mentioned to you off air, in terms of breaking in and people struggling, there's a couple of things that I think can be helpful for not everyone, but for a lot of people. One, I think, is personal branding, which I think you're great at, and we're going to talk about that in uh, very shortly. And, and, and another thing that I just want to talk about before we move on to it is GRC and how this can be used to essentially and potentially enhance career progression. Can you just let me and the listeners know your thoughts on the GRC space and how it can be used to break in easier, accelerate career progression and so on and so forth? Yeah. So I think you can get into the GRC. So for your audience, that's uh, governance, risk and compliance. If you can get into that space, the way to go there is from an audit background or from an assessor's background. And that's important because companies will define controls and those controls are to mitigate business risks. And when I say controls, often people who come in from a technology background think software and a control is a people, a process, 
or a technology. I put that one third and last importantly. And if you get into the GRC space as an assessor or as an auditor, you can actually evaluate the effectiveness of those controls without necessarily having to determine how does that software work, right? And you can look at that. It doesn't have that technology basis, those certifications. I think there are a couple certifications associated with audit and assessment. But if you want to go be an associate consultant or an associate at one of the big four accountancies or even a smaller accounting firm, you can actually get into GRC. And what it gives you is that perceptive of here's how companies generally do this stuff. And you get an industry agnostic view of how the cybersecurity risks are being mitigated. You also get a perspective of what works, what doesn't work, and you also get some funny, crazy little stories over what doesn't make any sense, but technically meets the spirit of it. Uh, and so one of the one of the things that I used to do was, you know, in, when I was doing assessments at in executive advisory was try to deconflict the relationship between audit and security because often there's this perception that the auditor is coming in they're the they're the bad person they're going to do something terrible to us no the reason that the auditor is there is to help your business understand how to improve at cybersecurity protect yeah yeah, and, and if we take that lens towards it of why you're getting an assessment done, a cybersecurity maturity assessment, or maybe a, a certification assessment like a SOC 2 type 2, it's about improving how well your business can be trusted by consumers and by other businesses. It's not necessarily about doing something bad. It's about creating a competitive advantage for yourself in the marketplace. And so I'd say for people who want to get into the GRC space, start to think of like, how can we communicate the impact we're making in a positive way? How can we actually actually communicate the value to that business so they understand why this is uh, c control operation is better at reducing a risk than another one. Part of the reason that I joined Hyperproof actually was to accelerate a lot of the remedial work because a lot of remedial GRC work is go ask the security team, can you send me a screenshot of a PDF of an Excel file so that I can look in it for a checkbox? And what is that? That's copying files and writing an if then else statement, right? Computers have been doing this stuff for decades. Just for a while there, we figured that like auditors needed to get involved in that. So part of what I'm doing with Hyperproof is automating that whole evidence collection where it doesn't require intuition. It's literally make the API call. Did it work? No. Tell somebody to go fix it. Did it work? Cool. No other work done. And that way, when you become an associate, you can look at larger questions like, does a company have a culture of cybersecurity? Now, there's no piece, single piece of evidence that is going to satisfy that. You have to use creativity and intuition and look at who's on the board of directors and who's signing the policy documents and how often and where is the training being done. And that's a far more rewarding problem space to work in than, again, sitting with a stopwatch at a desk to see, does the terminal lock after 15 minutes of inactivity, which I have seen companies do, and assessors like, Associate consultants, they don't, nobody likes that job. It's boring. So I'm trying to remove those boring elements out of this at Hyperproof yeah. because also that helps companies scale. So that instead of the security team always getting, this is a thing that drives security professionals nuts. 
right? We get into security because we want to do security. We do not get into security because we want to send audit a screenshot or an Excel file. We just don't have time. So by by investing in automation with that, we can actually deconflict, allow the security people to be more effective at doing their job, allow the audit team to be more effective at doing their job, and help businesses effectively reduce their cyber risk and business risk, as opposed to us all being project managers, follow up with A about B, which is just dull. Yeah, no, th- thanks, Ken. I've been making notes while you've been talking. I've got loads I want to ask you about. The last thing you said was automation, and I just want to talk. I've, I've been having a conversation today with a with a chap who's a director of a small pen testing company, and they're they're utilising automation, but they're utilising it in a in a cool way. They're doing it on certain aspects of the pen test, and in certain aspects, they are still doing manually. And I think there's a lot of people out there at the minute that are probably working inefficiently because they're a bit scared of AI or automation. I think there's loads, I think especially when, not so much web app, but when it comes to network pen testing, I think there's massive scope for it to be um, automated. And I think if people just embrace it and get with it, if you can do, if you can free up some time and focus on my passion, which is career development and self-development, because you've automated your network pen test, then great. If you're go- If you're dead against automating pen tests because you think that everyone should be writing their own attack scripts and getting behind the tools and not using burp suite all the time then if you're automating part of your pen test you can spend longer on the manual aspect and get better at it yeah look i think the automation piece is is massive i think people need to need to embrace it okay now you mentioned a little bit there about about what you've got going on at hyperproof as well i know you guys and girls over there just had a big big round of funding i know you're on a bit of a kind of moving forward I appreciate there'll be certain things you can and can't can and can't say, but what can you tell us about what you've what you've got going on? So right now we've got our first user conference coming up. It'll have happened after it's the first week of October. So depending on when the show drops, it'll probably be after this. It'll be after, yeah. after. <laughs> but it's our first user conference to really bring people in our customers, our prospects, and to talk to them about the four year vision of the product, not the one year vision, not the six month vision, but the four year vision of the product. And that's informed by what we already have heard from the market, but it's also informed by I've got the privilege of working with our product management team to explain to them as a CISO, here is what I expect to have on a dashboard as analytics before I'm going to go into a board presentation. Or as an auditor, here's what I would expect and here's where my team is going to make margin associated with efficiencies that we can build into code. So a lot of it is, I've got this great privilege inside of Hyperproof of helping shape and direct where future product investment can go. And that's informed also by my experiences, folks that I've talked to. Of course, we do get other perspectives as well, like we're getting our user conference. But it's a great space to be in right now because ultimately I want to change the narrative of cybersecurity being a black hole into which money and tears go in and only data breaches come out to cybersecurity really being a strategic competitive advantage. Because right now I I also, I talk to a lot of CISOs. I host a private CISO roundtable with about 100 people from three continents. It's a fun passion project of mine. Mm-hmm. We all struggle with security questionnaires. We all struggle with supply chain security where we've decided that the only way to trust somebody at this point to do business with them is to get their SOC 2 type 2, their ISO 27001, their <laughs> FedRAMP, and then send them a 1,200-question questionnaire 
which nobody really wants to read or fill out. And somehow we've considered that's good enough. I think that at Hyperproof, we're going to start looking towards how can businesses more effectively communicate their risk profile with their supply chain? Because that's what this is about. How do we do that effectively at scale? Because all the CISOs that I've spoken with in the past couple of years are concerned. Their team fills in the cybersecurity questionnaire, sends it to somebody. So now we've got human emotion in there. Does the person who filled it in understand the questions? Does the person who's reading it understand and interpret the questions? Or is this all just a big checkbox exercise that's, again, it's creating work and it's creating friction, but it's not actually doing anything meaningful. So at Hyperproof, we're starting to look at how do we effectively communicate how well our business is managing risk. And I think if we go to our, our most recent, like what the SEC is pushing towards, what the FTC is pushing towards, what NIS2 directive is pushing towards, right? How are companies effectively burning down their cyber risk? How can we use a data-oriented approach towards that as opposed to a feelings-based or an opinion-based approach towards that? And how do we do that on a continuum rather than a point in time. When I used to do assessments at companies, they'd, they'd say they check their uh, login logs once a year. So what you're telling me is the other 364 days, somebody else could have logged in who shouldn't have been able to log in. And that's an okay deficiency in y'all's mind? You think that's okay? Or companies that think they'll do a risk assessment every five years. No, that's not what we can do anymore. It's no longer acceptable in business. And so part of my privilege at Hyperproof is communicating that message outwards, listening to what people are saying and helping to steer where the company is going. Thank you, Kate. Can you use the word communication there a few times and it's it's massive it's just absolutely huge the ability to bridge the gap between non-technical and technical stakeholders the ability to bridge the gap between client and consultancy you know there's, there's, there's so much there that's absolutely intrinsically linked to upping security postures and so on and so forth this ties in really nicely with there's three things that really, really, really important in people's careers. I think the technical aspect, I think the personal brand and ever more, and I think the communication piece. I don't think it's a coincidence that your communication skills are so strong when you've had a theatre background and a GRC background. So I think they're two massive reasons. I know working in GRC, you would have had to liaise with multiple varying different types of stakeholders and coming from your theatre background, it's obviously just refined, refined, and you've got where you are today. So... I think I know why your communication skills are as good as they are. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about that. But what can I do to improve my... We're going to talk about the personal brand. And I, but I just quickly, on the communication piece, thing. if people are pinging a, pinging a survey, do you, do you think the communication needs to be stronger there? If they're just getting sent a survey and some random person's filling it out, that doesn't sound too like relationship-driven and, and too good on the communication side. To me, there's some improvement to be made there, isn't there? Yeah, it, it def I think we all are in varying skills of communications. And in cybersecurity, we have to keep a space for people who are neurodivergent and are not effective in-person communicators. There is definitely like GCHQ will straight up hire people who are facially blind and they will go, cool, you know what? That's not actually a job skill y'all need. I have met malware researchers who you try and sit across the table from them at lunch and have a coffee. They will say maybe two words. You get them on Slack, they will talk your ear off, right? We have to make a space as recruiters as okay. well as hiring managers for people who are in our industry who behave differently. I think it's not just 
just making accommodations because maybe they're in a protected class. It's because they're skilled people. We need their skills. We need their different viewpoint. Now, if you are a little more towards the neurotypical spectrum and you want to get better at communication skills, the thing I'd encourage everyone is if you're a member of a professional society, find a volunteer opportunity or two. And that could be something like volunteering to introduce speakers at a conference or an opportunity to help moderate a panel or an opportunity to give a discussion, actually, or to help curate notes or to sit in on a board meeting and see how folks talk. That's that entry point. I'd also say if you're really looking to uplevel your skills, go join Toastmasters. Toastmasters is one of the most useful organizations for improving communication skills out there. They've got lots of local chapters. So if you're not a member of a professional society in cybersecurity, go ahead, join Toastmasters, go to their meetings, learn how to talk. Yes, you might have to explain what life is like as a golf ball for a full minute, which is one that I remember having to do. And I don't play, I play mini golf, but that's about as close as I got. But look for those opportunities also in your professional societies. More than five years ago, the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers put out a survey and said, hey, would anybody like to talk about cybersecurity? And I raised my hand and I said, sure. And in the years since, I've taken media training on an annualized basis for free. They have me working with a media relations firm where basically the press goes out and they ask folks to say, hey, we need your opinion on this. Now, I've been asked opinions where I remember one day I did an interview with uh, Reader's Digest, which is the Boomer's publication, and a publication for, it was a DevOps publication focusing on an esoteric, I think it was Rowhammer, was the memory attack. Both in the same day, both back to back, one hour in between, have to prep for both interviews. You have to learn how do I cognitively shift my narrative of, first of all, I'm writing for a senior's publication. Second, <laughs> I'm talking to somebody who's like maybe 20, right? How do you do that? And if you think that's great, you got that opportunity, where else can I do that? And if I'm not a member, go look at Harrow, H-A-R-O, help a reporter out right? Another good organization there where if you really want to uplevel your communication skills, try and engage with the media. It is going to be because a lot of reporters out there, they don't know how this stuff works. They, they're not experts in cybersecurity. They want to talk to experts in cybersecurity. And if you can do that, what it does is it helps you to develop a brand and it helps you to develop a voice. And I will guarantee you, if you do this, like I look at stuff I wrote seven years ago, it's trash. Right? I was still figuring out how to talk. I was still trying to figure out, like, how do I engage with the media? How do I engage with the board? Once you've done that for long enough, though, acknowledging you're going to fail at the outset. It's going to suck. It's going to be hard. It's going to feel yeah. weird. But if you get past that nervousness, if you work through that, there are longer-term rewards because if you're in cybersecurity and you can effectively communicate, then you can decide... Do I want to go on the managerial track and manage budgets and manage human relationships, or do I want to stay on the technical track? And they're both right things, right? I think something that we have in this in our industry is this false dichotomy that, that CISO is the end of the line, that we're all holding some triangle, and everybody's supposed to become the CISO at the end of their career. And no, we need people who are really good malware researchers. If you love doing network offensive testing, go do that. Be really good at it. Maybe you can talk about it. Cool, right? If you want to manage multi-billion dollar budgets and lose some hair and lose some sleep, cool. Go ahead. Go be a CISO. Have some personal liability. Talk to your lawyer first because it's not that much fun. 
But it, that, it gives you that flexibility then if you can't communicate your ideas effectively and that's whether one-on-one -on -one or whether that's one to a thousand, ultimately you're going to hit a pinnacle in your career that you can't get past. And that's irrespective of social markers, that's irrespective of background, and that becomes a decider for where is your senior career years going to be spent. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, mate. Very informative, detailed answers. And you, you mentioned something there about you, you're, going to, you're going to be rubbish at first. The phrase I like to use is get really comfortable feeling uncomfortable. Because when you are uncomfortable, that does actually remember. That means you're growing. It means you're moving forward. It means you're developing as a person. So that's a key thing. And yeah, look, you're right. If you're building C2 frameworks all day or you've got your head in, in malware, if you're doing that all day, especially remote, you're probably not going to be great at communication unless you're like an absolute natural, natural born, which I don't think too many people are. It's, if, if that's a skill set that's not been refined, you, you, you're going to struggle. So yeah, I think the communication piece is massive, mate. I completely agree. On a consultancy basis, it becomes more and more valuable. I think with AI, I think the communication side becomes more and more uh, important because no matter how good AI gets, and I've heard this on various podcasts, I think I might have said it on another episode, but there becomes a point where a human wants to talk to a human. And if you've got the ability to do that and bridge certain gaps between certain stakeholders, very valuable skill set so thank you mate for, for, for giving us your, your thoughts on that the next thing i want to talk about is by the way for anyone listening if you're in the consultancy game or you're in you're in a people you're in a people business the communication piece is absolutely ginormous you've like please listen up like you've got to refine these skills it will make a huge difference to your career progression another thing that i believe i actually believe these two things side by side the technical piece does matter, but I actually think with a ridiculously strong personal brand and very good communication skills, I actually think you can go very far. The technical piece obviously matters, but I think those two really matter. I know your personal brand's good, Kane. I know you do loads of different variant podcasts. You, you mentioned your media training. Um, what tips and advice have you got for people on personal branding? It'd be nice to hear your thoughts from people that are maybe far down the line, but also people starting out. What if I'm sat here and I'm literally scared of writing a LinkedIn post? Which, by the way, I was there once. Maybe not scared, but I was certainly like a little bit, I mean, nothing like I am now. I just post like there's no tomorrow. I put it out without even worrying. But the question is, in a really long-winded way, mate, what tips have you got for enhancing personal brand for career progression purposes within cybersecurity? This will be a brief answer. It's okay. not about you. And that's the funny thing about personal branding is it's not your story. What can you do to help lift up others? How can you inspire other people? How can you motivate other people? What knowledge can you share that makes the world a better place? If you are an expert in a field, how can you make that more accessible to other people. And the reason that's important from personal branding perspective is that not how cool you are, not the clothes you're wearing, not this neat thing you did, this long-winded story you want to tell. How are you making our field 
which has got a lot of esoterica, a lot of three-letter acronyms associated with it. We do a heck of a lot of gatekeeping in this industry. How do you lower the barrier to entry for others? That is more important to me than anything else associated with personal branding because I have met other folks. There's a, a person I meet at conferences a lot, wrote a book about this one time, this thing happened, and you get into a conversation with them and it goes immediately to the book. Can you imagine how much fun he is at dinner parties? <laughs> he wants to talk about a book that he wrote five years ago. And you're like, do you do anything else other than relentlessly promote this book that you wrote? Don't do that. Don't become that person. I've, I know a few yeah. others who are in this out in this space I as do. well. Mate, That's do. the other side of it, right? <laughs> Let's just not go there. Make it about other people. Make it about sharing. The, the joy I have of getting on podcasts, and thank you again for having me on, is being able to share and inspire and provide perspective. Because as I look at this, like I've been doing this over 25 years now, if I'm not giving back to the community, I am failing in my ethical obligations. I am failing in my social obligations because what we've been doing in cybersecurity, I sincerely believe we've been doing it wrong, right? That might be a controversial standpoint, but if we were doing it right, none of us would have jobs, right? This would be a solved <laughs> thing. We wouldn't, this wouldn't be a conversation. I would have been dancing on Broadway at this point instead, and I would still have a singing voice, but it's not. We are missing facts. So what can we do? Make the story about somebody else, make it accessible. That's a way to build a personal brand. Cool. I'm certainly not going to ask you to sing me a song, mate, so don't, so don't worry. I don't want to hear you singing voice. <laughs> thank yeah. you in advance. Well. Yeah, thank you. Um, do you know what as well? It's so right um, about giving back. Because look, I don't know if you were the same as me, Ken, but early on, first you think it's all about money and then you get a bit and you realise it's the biggest anticlimax on the planet. And for anyone that's just in it for that, you'll, you'll realise anyway, tapping into your sense of purpose and doing things to help others and getting that, when you get some, I'm sure you've had it, mate, some positive feedback on things you've done for the community. It feels amazing it feels absolutely great you're actually lifting your own mood you're helping yourself you're reinforcing the your pre-existing knowledge you're helping others but yeah mate i love what you just said there you, you basically started off that, that the answer to that question i asked with it's not about you and it's so, so true you may be you really made me laugh mate when you made <laughs> I've got a friend who all he's in, he's such a loyal guy. I, I don't think you'll listen. He's not in time security, but he won't be listening to this, so I'll say it. But very nice guy, extremely loyal, but just talks about himself all the time. And literally, like you'll see my the rest of my social circle, like they'll be looking over, like rolling their eyes at me. And it's so true because not hand on heart, no one really cares. Like they want you to help them. They're not going on these platforms or whatever or listening to a podcaster. They want to know what they can get out of it. And I think you've summed it up in such a succinct way there, mate. It's, it, it, it's so true. Okay, we're coming up to coming up to about an hour. Is there anything else we, we were we were going to go over? I know we've properly freestyled. So sometimes I ask, is there anything else? as a bit of a throwaway comment at the end, but is there anything else we were going to we were going to talk about for the listeners to really help career progression? Oh, I'll tell you what I wanted to ask you. Hmm. You mentioned you mentioned CyberSeek. Can you just elaborate on, on, on what that is and how that's helpful? Oh, sure. So CyberSeek.org is a nonprofit. They are a non-industry aligned resource that shows a heat map and a path 
to careers. So if you're thinking, where do I start in cybersecurity and where could I end up and what are the certifications and skills that I might want to look at, as well as what is the actual job description, they provide a lot of good resources associated with that. And I point that one out because, again, it's not industry affiliated. They're not trying to sell you their certification because so many of these other educational platforms or certifications, they're just trying to sell you a product, right? That's the cash mill cranking on. CyberSeq doesn't work that way. So when I'm looking for realistic, now admittedly it is US-centric stats on the labor market associated with cybersecurity, I'll go there first. Sounds good. I think I think you might have just inspired me for my LinkedIn post the, this evening. Thank you. And yeah, just just another point to, to finish up on. Finish up on Ken. You, you mentioned about going for the CISO and that being the pinnacle, but you also mentioned you, know, you need offensive related malware analysts. And I think as well, it's you, am I right in saying you, you're basically saying yeah to a certain extent you've got to follow your passion if you want to do this whole communication thing and progress and be really commercially aware and deal with end clients and this great. But if you don't, don't force yourself to do something you don't want to do or you're not passionate about because it's not sustainable. It's a bit like giving back to the community. Like, I know you're genuinely passionate about giving back to the community because you do it on a consistent basis again and again and again. And you can't fake that. You can fake it for six months, 12 weeks, but you can't fake it for years on end because it's really hard to give back on a consistent basis. I had Tyler from Rhino Labs on and he does a lot of community-led stuff and we were both saying, I can't remember whether it was on air or off air, we were both saying that is you can't fake it. So you've got to for it to be sustainable and for you to be happy doing it, you, you've got to actually think and drill down into to what you want, haven't you? Oh, I, I think so. Absolutely. This is a, regardless of what part of your career you're in or what you do. I think in cybersecurity, there's really two things that are essential. The first and foremost is if you're happy and learning, because if you're not happy and you're not learning, you're probably in the wrong role. And no amount of money, as you just said, is going to make it any better because that's just a false narrative. Once you start making a certain amount of money, honestly, Tom, like you don't need any more. You're not going to get any more happier. But the other thing I'd say beyond happiness and, and learning, we all have to understand we're here to serve the business. We don't have cybersecurity. Businesses don't deploy cybersecurity uh, technology because they necessarily want to. We select controls because we have to. We select controls because they manage risks. And so we don't do technology for technology's sake. So remember that at all times, what am I doing to help the business? And I say that because I've, I've met a lot of CISOs who they try to just go into a, a board presentation or executive level presentation talking about the technology. Ain't nobody cares about that. How does this map to my key performance indicators or my fiscal year plan? What are you doing to support that? If we get on that narrative, if we drop this narrative of there are cyber risks, no, there aren't. There are business risks. Some of them have a cyber flavor, but they're all business risks. This is something that we need to start thinking about collectively as an industry, because if we do that, cybersecurity becomes a competitive strategic business advantage, not a black hole, and we can all be happier and be helping our businesses and our communities and our friends a lot more effectively than if we over-rotate into technology, which is what we've done for 20 plus years, and it hasn't worked. We need to change that narrative and make this around. We're helping each other, we're learning together. We do like working in teams and we're helping the business. Brilliant. Kane, mate, I love your energy. You're very energized. You've got a 
very strong ability to think of things from the other person's standpoint, take a step back. Mate, it's really, really, really good. It's been a really interesting chat, my friend. Coming to the end here, I, I say this all the time. I promise every guest an hour, I'm always keeping, I'm always keeping people longer. And I know you're mega, mega busy, mate, especially with the recent fundraising and stuff like that. But mate, thanks for your time. In fact, I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna ask you two more, if that's all right with you. Is that okay? Sure. Yep. Podcasts that you've done lately. What's the big? If I'm listening now, what's the biggest learning you've had from any podcast you've been associated with? this year biggest learning i've had from any podcast this year that's been a lot of podcasts i think it's i think it's about how to talk to other people about risk more than anything else because if you look at where all of the regulatory guidance is moving towards it's risk and if we can't understand how to communicate risk effectively we're not going to do very well as an industry. We are going to completely miss the boat. So across all of the podcasts that I've listened to, there are, and that I've been on as a guest, there are ones where they're still very over-rotated into technology, and I don't think that's going to work long-term sustainably. And then there are more effective ways of looking at it, which is on business risk, and I'm starting to see that narrative change. I think I also, I'm trying to change that narrative. Cool. Yeah, very, being able to articulate risk, getting stuff fixed when it's found. Finding stuff is is only half the job's a bit harsh, but if you find stuff and you can't get it fixed, uh, you're not you're not helping. So hugely valuable skill. Right, last question, mate. I promise. Uh, book that's had the most positive impact on your career doesn't have to be security related. It can be, of course, but it doesn't have to be. Oh, okay. For, for okay, everyone just... that's just Kane's just walk. <laughs> I, I know I could see Kane when we put this out, but uh, this is just audio. Kane just walked off. So, uh... Look here, actually. <laughs> I had to grab it to hold up. So it's Alan de Botton, Alan de okay. Botton's Joys okay. and uh, Pleasures and Sorrows of Work. Um, okay. That he's a poet. He was the poet laureate of Heathrow, actually, I think, for a while okay. here. And when I think about work, a lot of these stories and the perspectives that they give, it's one why I keep it near my desk. Um, it helps understand what other people's human experience is with work. And I think it's invaluable for us to, as people to be able to empathize with others. I would recommend that as it's not a very, it's not a, at all even vaguely cyber related, but it okay. gives a perspective of the human experience of work. So this is a book to enhance communication skills. A bit, yeah. Yeah, 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 cool. Thank you, mate. Listen, thanks for your time, buddy. Kane, thank you, my friend. Really enjoyed that. I love your attitude towards the industry. I love what you're doing in the community. If it's okay with you, if people want to reach out to you on LinkedIn for anything, by the way, is that cool? Is that okay? Oh, absolutely, yes. I'm Kane yeah. McGladry on LinkedIn, and I'm also on Twitter for some reason. That's almost historical reasons now. And if people want to learn more about the company I'm at, Hyperproof, we are at hyperproof.io. Cool. Thank you, Kane. We'll pop uh, Kane's various URL links for the LinkedIn's and stuff like that. We'll pop that in the show notes. But thank you for everyone for listening. Thank you to Kane, and I'll see you all next week. <laughs>